Today is Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. Time for episode 72 of the Barnhart Podcast. And I think the word of the week is acedia. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and that, that is... what I did there. <laughs> something like that. And that is the correct pronunciation, doesn't it? It's acedia. That's the way I've always said, and I've always heard it said is acedia. Um, yeah, I got a, a real a surprising amount of feedback. You know, the, the, when I get the big feedback, it's never when I expect it. But a lot of people emailed in off of the acedia blog post, and um, most of them were saying just, oh, that's what that is. That's what that's called. And they were actually, most of them were speaking, were referencing themselves. Only a few people, you know, p- framed it in the context of, of seeing it in other people, which, I mean, it's it's easy to see it, especially in, you know, in what's going on in the church and among the, the clerics and, and bishops and everyone else, just clearly they they don't care they a lot of them don't believe any of it they don't have any supernatural faith and clearly a lot of them just don't care but it's just i think you know what struck people was just more just that overall you know you're the entire the entirety of of one's life just slipping into just not caring anymore and then truly the definition of acedia is it isn't just that you don't care it's that you don't care you realize you don't care, and you don't care that you don't care. It's it almost kind of turns into a, a Bugs Bunny sketch a little bit there, but that's that really is the the definition of what it is. You don't care that you don't care, and um, a lot of people just recognize that and saw it in themselves. So hey, anything anything I can do to help, and I I hope that that did help. It's I mean anything to kind of jar people and shake them up and you know, make them look at themselves and say, hey, wait a minute, something, this, is, this isn't right. And there's a lot of temptation out there to, to acedia, which is, which is weird, you know, P- other people who have acedia counterintuitively say, well, you've got this, you've got this problem, you've got this vice that you don't care, but then it, it becomes militant in yourself that you're then trying to drag other people down into it. Because remember, that's what demons do, you know, they're just, they're constantly trying to drag everyone they possibly can into hell with them. And when human beings descend into vice, they become more and more and more like demons. So demons are simultaneously, you know, completely stricken with acedia. They don't care, they're indifferent, but then they have this absolutely ferocious, insatiable need to drag everyone else down into it with them, which is, it's counterintuitive but if you sit and think about it for a second you realize that's exactly that's exactly what happens you know you want you want to be ratified you want other people to tell you yeah you're right uh uh-huh and acedia is a sin and concupiscent man love love loves to be ratified in their sin and so when they hear other people people of authority ratifying them in their sin then it's really attractive to them and that's why anti-pope bergoglio and i talk about this in the in the video about the bergoglian anti-papacy i address this specifically this is why anti-pope bergoglio is so popular um, I mean, he's growing less popular, but don't kid yourselves. I mean, that's just among a relatively small percentage. The vast majority of people in the post-Christian West still think he's the cat's pajamas. Why? Because he ratifies them in their sins and he tells them that their sins aren't sins. And so, you know, you've got 
he's a manifestation of that. And then we also have it even on, you know, the complete other side of the spectrum over here in, in Tratty land, you've got the same thing. You have this temptation to just throw up your hands, walk away, say, I don't care, but then militantly insist that other people do the same thing. Um, realize what it is, recognize it when you see it, as I said in the blog post, first and foremost in yourself, then in others, flee from it, and specifically in the Rosary, third glorious mystery, Pentecost, descent of the Holy Ghost on the Apostles and Mary, what's the fruit of the mystery? Love of God, zeal, zeal. So that is, if, you know, everybody listening to the Barnhart podcast should be totally praying the rosary all the time. But that's the one you focus on and you think about when you're praying the rosary, you're thinking about your life and how these apply to you and your daily life. Okay, that's what you're thinking about during uh, the third glorious, uh, thinking about Pentecost and thinking about love of God, zeal and battling acedia in yourself. At a more natural level, it reminds me of that scene from the movie Network The guy says, I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. And specifically talking at people who are saying, who are just cowering and say, please let me be alone in my living room. Let me have my toaster, my TV and my, my, whatever else he says. And it's like, no, you've got to be mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. And especially eternally and infinitely. Yes, we have value. And if you don't, if you don't have a visceral reaction to this, then yeah, it's wrong. And it's called acedia. Yeah, I mean, and this is also kind of a function of the the feminization of the church and the whole, don't kid yourselves. I mean, this whole politically correct toxic masculinity thing, this has bled all the way through, all the way over into the trad right, where there's this thought that you should never be angry and you should never you should never be upset about anything. Oh, I'm sorry. Read read Thomas. If you don't get angry, you know, at certain things, at certain horrific sins and injustices that are happening before you, if you have this, you know, Stepford wife zombie thing going on, or you just throw up your hands, walk away, say, there's nothing I can do. I don't care. I'm going to go, you know, weave sticks together or something. Um, no, that, that is a sin to not be angry when you should be righteously angry is in itself a sin. Now, that that anger can never be permitted to turn into wrath, and that's what we all, especially me, have to watch out for closely, closely, because anger anger is, you know, it's, it's a passionate passion, if I may be permitted to use the term, and it's really easy for it to get away from you, really, really easy. But there absolutely are times when you should be mad as hell, and... Um, People just aren't. And I. Th- what I keep thinking back to, it's so funny. You got all the trads who are, you know, falling into acedia and saying, oh, there's nothing we can do. Just wait for him to die. There's nothing we can do. Just shut up. And it's the same people. It's the same people that I used to sit around a table with. And they would say, why in the hell didn't the people in the the late 1960s when they were doing all this stuff to the mass why in the hell didn't those people riot you know strike have protests in front of the church the you know the first sunday of advent of 1969 when the novus ordo mass was promulgated why didn't the people in that generation which would be what the pre world war 2 generation and the and the um 
and the baby boomers were young adults at that point. Why, why weren't they mad as hell? Why didn't they do anything? And now here we are 50 years later and the people who just a few years ago were sitting around saying, why didn't the people in the late 1960s, why didn't our parents and grandparents get mad as hell and do something about the Novus Ordo? Why did they just sit there and let it happen? They, they are missing the fact and they're lacking the self-awareness to, you know, pull the focus back, look at the big picture and realize that when they're saying, oh, there's nothing we can do, just, you know, it's only, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. All we can do is wait for him to die and maybe there will be some supernatural intervention or something. They're doing exactly the same thing that they were criticizing their parents and grandparents for doing in the 60s when the Novus Ordo was promulgated. Why didn't they do anything? It's always somebody else's job, isn't it? Isn't that typical human nature? It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else's job. And when it, when something you know, happens and it becomes perfectly clear that, you know what, we're the ones who are going to have to take care of this. We're the ones who are like it or not, fair or not, complain or not, whatever. Doesn't matter whose job it is. It has to, something has to be done about it. And when there, and there's a non-trivial percentage of people, especially now in this culture, so feminized, so effeminized, Toxic masculinity, anyone who does anything is clearly not a prayerful, trusting person. I had to sit through a I just sit through a little a little homily at a at a daily low mass the other day. And you know, the priest turned around and I was sitting in the front row and he saw I was there. And I don't I don't know if he custom tailored this for me, but he, you know, he did that that homily that so many priests give or the little that little spiel that a lot of people give that if you if you are doing anything and you think that you can do anything, you know, if you're, if you're trying to be quote unquote an activist, then that clearly means that you're not a sufficiently prayerful person. You don't trust God. You know, what, what are, what are the, what's that um, kind of novus order we, what do they say? L- let go and let God. He didn't say that, but that was, that was the gist of this little homily um, dur- during the, the low mass, you know, the whole let go and let God. And if you won't do that, then you must not be a sufficiently prayerful enough person. And I was just like, all right, whatever. I guess I, I'm, I'm going to have to take up his slack too. Great. Add one more to the tally. Go ahead. At some point, there is some truth to what he's saying, but I want to jump back to what you're talking about, the the um, the veterans of the Second World War and the, and the people who mm. who were responsible for the, the, you know, the excesses of the 60s. I want to say this is in the talks of uh, Father Ripiger on the genera- generational yes. spirits, which mm-hmm. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. We're, we have barely started and I've already got like seven <laughs> links that I know I'm going to put in the show notes. <laughs> but uh, th- it was it was the overreaction to the horrors and the excesses of violence that came from uh, the the both theaters of war, the Japanese and the Germans and all the atrocities that were seen that part of the never again was being violent, being doing too much, giving a damn and, and getting mad as hell saying, no, let's, let's try being laid back and see what happens. Well, you get mm-hmm. the sixties is what happens. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's a natural you know reaction. And you, we've mentioned many times that Satan is a master chess player. Of course, mm-hmm. he knows how to exploit these psychological you know, ebbs and flows. You have a generation that saw all the all the violence and trauma that that goes along with something like the Second World War. 
Oh yeah. The, the great thing here is to now push the boundaries because the kids, they're, they're going to be very permissive because these, the, the people who fought in the second world war also lived through the great depression. They mm-hmm. knew what it was like to be deprived of, of so much just because it wasn't available. Then they go fight overseas against some of those most barbaric regimes that have ever come across the earth. Mm-hmm. And then now they come back to the land of plenty. They have all this material wealth. Why should they, deny their children and of course these spoiled brats grow up and you know they they breed you know three generations down now we've got now generation z which is Mm -hmm. either the worst thing or the or a possible reawakening we don't know which yet and we are getting well it was supposed to be just a a general introduction to the word acedia getting in but we're also it's not that far off of the main topic that we wanted to talk about tonight Um, but before we get there was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into that no, we might as well get started. And, you know, I think you tweeted, didn't you, that we were going to record this and we were going to be talking about the infamous Milo interview. And looking, just looking, I sat down and, you know, prepared myself with moderate consumption of alcohol to sit and listen to this thing, which I have been, you know, delaying listening to because, um, you know, should I survive any of this and the autobiography gets written there's going to be stories to tell. But anyway. um, Yes, I did tweet about it. And I said, if anybody has any questions in advance, let me know. And the only question is not very sane is, is Anne as crazy as she sounds or is it an act? Um, If you think it's an act, go reread the article on Acedia and then let me know what you think. (laughs) Am I as crazy as I sound or is it just an act? Uh, I I guess I'm as crazy as I sound because I... This is pretty much how I am. Um, you know, I'm, I, I talk a little bit more because I'm being paid to talk more, but or not being paid, but I'm putting on a podcast. So it would be, <laughs> it would be kind of, uh, it would be kind of odd if, if you know, Super Nerd called me. We turned on the recording device, and um, I would just sit here and not and answer questions with yes or no or something like that. So, yes. Yeah, don't don't misinterpret the uh, energy on Anne's side as craziness. It's uh, it's more motivation more than anything mm-hmm. else. So Enthusiasm. yes, Milo Enthusiasm. had an interview with Michael Voris recently, and it was a wide ranging interview and uh, went for about an hour. And we'll I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well in case you want to uh, listen to that and compare notes. But um, good grief! I think was, this is going to be this is going this might be a double episode because you saw the timestamps and the notes that I sent you. I mean, it was just, yeah, I mean, it was just like every 90 seconds, there's a point that needs to either be rebutted or, or, or agreed with, because he absolutely did say some things that are, that are correct, that are true and need to be reiterated and expanded upon. So um, we'll see how, we'll see how the time goes, but this might end up being two, two episodes. So, and that's one of the weird and infuriating and, infuriating and satisfying things at the same time as, as weird as those two things sound to go together. When you listen to Milo talk about Catholicism, this is somebody who for the most part, he's actually got it right. Yeah. Except for this yep. one big problem. Uh, just ever so slightly big. And you said something to me about, you know, the last 10 minutes. Yeah. It gets dark in the last 10 minutes of this, of this um, interview and, and we'll get to it, but it's just, you just li- you're listening to him talking and you're just going, Oh my goodness, this is not good. So, all right, I guess, I guess we should just start, huh? Right. So Milo and Voris have a, actually it was Michael Voris called um, Milo Yiannopoulos. 
and, and they had a, a conversation, a wide-ranging conversation about many things. And of course, if you've never heard of Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, then you haven't listened to all the episodes of the podcast, which, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to listen to them all. Milo is a has been described as many things. He's an alt-right uh, conservative. He's a big fan of, of President Trump. He's from England, so he couldn't vote in the election. He's also a homosexual. And that's relevant because this whole conversation that Voris and Milo had is about Catholicism. And Mm -hmm. the whole idea of a homosexual Catholic, these two terms don't really go together. Yeah. And of course, Michael Voris is somebody who had a conversion. I'll take him at his word. I do too. I'll take him at his word. Absolutely. He had a conversion from being an active homosexual to being somebody who no longer uh he's he's now chased i don't know if that means he's cured or i don't know how that works exactly it's i, I never asked him but he's he's fine as far as that goes for at the moment he does not uh, act on any of those impulses if he has them anymore so he is if you know as far as we know in a state of grace going to the, going to the sacraments and trying to um perform an authentic catholic uh, apostolate and he does a lot of good milo says a lot of good things but there's you know, the obvious problem he says he's catholic and he says he's homosexual so michael voris is in a unique position to be able to talk to somebody in that mm-hmm. position saying hey i've been where you are brother mm-hmm. let me help you try to get out of that and we talked about the the darker aspect of the last 10 minutes of it that's re- you know we're this might be next episode but um so that was the whole background there so it was, it was a wide-ranging conversation, and I'll let you take take over on the notes and on the timeline. Okay, so before we get into the timestamps, um, just preface, preamble things that I want to say about this. We've already established Milo is an active and enthusiastically active sodomite. Anytime you are dealing with an active sodomite, you are dealing with a person who is so blinded, who is mired in such extreme sin that they are they are just morally blinded no matter how smart they are no matter how articulate they are no matter how charming they are no matter how much they say the right things for the love of god literally listen to me you cannot be bewitched by this you have to keep this compartmentalized this person is morally insane okay morally insane you that's, have well, to remember this that's one way of looking at it i thought of it you know what, what struck me is this is somebody who knows what the right way is would like to follow the right way but is enslaved by his own vices by his own passions by his own sins and if there was some way he could magically cut free of 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 the of the vices in which he is engaged or has been inflicted on him and throughout his life then yeah he would want to do the good but he does not want to do the arduous good at this point. So there's a, there's and he a makes that very clear at the end very of the interview. Clear, yes. Very clear. Um, so yeah. So just reiterating, and, and this is a problem. And as this problem of sodomy continues to metastasize through the culture and it's, and it's, it's big in Europe in Traddy land. And as I've talked and written about before, it's getting, it's infiltrating into North America. It's infiltrating even into Traddy land in North America. And there is this temptation among people to think that there are certain kinds. And it's interesting. There's a timestamp. Milo even says this. He, he, he completely confirms what I'm about to say. There are people who fall into this trap that, um, 
there are certain sodomites that are safe and they're okay because they're on our side. I am, I'm dealing with a situation involving this, trying to warn people in Traddy land about certain sodomites. And there are quite a few of them who have infected Traddy land who are there. People need to be warned about this. And these people, they just, well, you know what? I don't have any videographic evidence. And, you know, this guy is, is clearly on side. And I'm just like, you you cannot be serious because they're doing basically exactly the same thing that has that happened over the years with McCarrick. You know, everyone knew about McCarrick. Everyone was talking about this. Everyone was warning everyone else in hushed tones. Listen, this guy, he's chasing these seminarians. And what would people do? They would say, I've never actually seen any evidence of it with my own eyes as if these sodomites are going to like, you know, invite you to come and watch them, you know, do, do their foul deeds or anything. Of course, they're not going to do that. You're never going to eyewitness anything. You're never going to have, pray God, you never eyewitness anything. You're probably never going to see videographic evidence of anything. It's just, they're smarter than that. You know, there's never going to be that videographic evidence, but all these people know and so, I mean, I'm sorry, but if, if someone comes to you and tells you, look, I have absolute 100% rock solid from, from family members of, the, of this sodomite telling me, listen, this guy is a sodomite, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, if I'm telling you this, that is evidence, you cannot turn a blind eye to this and say that you didn't know about it. And there are certain people in Traddy Land who, whom I have told, who, whom I've told and warned about sodomites in Traddy Land by name, and they've and they've said I have no evidence of this, uh, so I can't I can't make take any action or make put any credence in any of this. And I say, all right, listen, here's what you need to know. When this blows up, and it eventually will, it will eventually go public and it will eventually blow up. If you ever, ever say that you didn't know and nobody warned you and you had no idea, I will immediately run to the nearest computer terminal and I will post, I will screen cap and I will post the emails. I will post the email exchanges that uh, that we have just had so that you absolutely cannot ever say nobody told me i didn't know because that will be a lie so i've pinned you into a into a moral corner now you know i've told you and you can never ever ever say you didn't know because if you do i will i will publicly expose you for doing it that's the place where we are and that's how it needs to be it, it we need to start holding people morally to account for turning a blind eye because that's how all of this McCarrick crap happened that's how this entire infestation of holy mother church with these filthy sodomite clerics and prelates that's how it all happened is by people turning a blind eye effeminacy impotency you know, not wanting to not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to stand up and, and call a sin a sin and do the unpleasant good of driving these people out. So, you know, there's probably people listening to this and they say, crap, I think she might be talking about me. Yeah, you know who you are and you know I'm talking about you and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So there you go. It's a little bit more public now. Um, well, one of the things that Milo makes a point of is, is, is he, he makes this false 
false equivalency, false dichotomy, false statement that there are good gays and bad gays. And yep. wait, he, I've got he, a timestamp on that. Well, hold on, Where hold on. <laughs> and, and and if you're if you aren't a critical thinker, if you don't you know catch this immediately, you might go along with it and be persuaded. How about you just roll that back a second and just swap out the word gay with something else? How about there are good racists and bad racists. There are good um, murderers and bad murderers. There are good fraud actors and bad fraud actors. Um, You know, just think about this. Something is either good or it's not. And if you're referring to a class of people as possibly being good or bad, which are by definition bad because you're referring to a sin... Yep. It's a false statement. And Absolutely. unfortunately, Voris didn't call him on that. No, Voris didn't call him on hardly anything. Voris just, I don't, I don't know. He was just, he just kind of giggled his way through most of it. He made, he had a little bit of a, he got, he said a little bit of something about two thirds of the way through, but that was it. He, he missed a massive opportunity. Okay. So moving on to my list, um, the whole notion of tribalism, it's, it's quote unquote, okay, if he's on our side. I see this all the time. And trad uh, and traddy land people in North America, you have got to be on the lookout for this. Oh, oh, he's such a good organist. Yeah, and oh, he's 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 so good with liturgy and just what would we do without him? Um I, I don't care. You go without an organ. Um you just pull back and have and have low mass with one server. If you have to, that's better than having some filthy queen sodomite infect your parish and pollute everything. There is no amount. And you, you, I love me liturgy. I love me some good liturgy. I love me some good church music, baby. Nobody loves it more than I do. But I'm here to tell you that if you put liturgy above God, it is then liturgy becomes the idol. And don't think for a second that liturgy can't become an idol. I've seen it with my own eyes. And a lot of these um, sodomite men in Tradyland are exactly this. I call them liturgical fetishists. They're not, they're not there for the worship of God. Look at their lives. Look at, look at what they're doing. They're sodomites. A lot of them are sacrilegious sodomites. They're chasing after priests and seminarians. They're acting like absolute animals. They are, they are horrific to other people. They treat other people like garbage as policy. And yet, oh, it's okay because liturgy, 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 liturgy. No, the, the liturgy, good, quote unquote, good liturgy doesn't bail any of that out. In fact, it makes it worse that because precisely because you are exposed to this beautiful, beautiful thing, which is the 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 true liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church and also the Byzantine liturgy. I, I love the Byzantine Catholic liturgies as well. It can be absolutely gorgeous. You're exposed to this. You know this intimately. You're, you know, you're completely versed in this. You above all people should be held then to the higher standard. You should know your faith better. You should have, you know, personal morality precisely because you can see 
not only the beauty of the liturgy, but in these dark days, we can compare it to the Novus Ordo and these horrible things that are going on. Like um, somebody's been sending me videos of some some abomination that just happened at the World Youth Day in Panama. I mean, oh, World Youth Day needs to be just. I mean, if you could n- nuke an idea, that's that's an idea that just needs to be nuked. No more World Youth Days. They're just horrible, horrible things. But if you can compare, you know, the true liturgies, the the glorious, beautiful liturgies of the church to that hot mess, I mean, doesn't any of this sink in at all? And that's the thing. It doesn't sink in because, you know, germane to sodomites, because that's that's the topic of this podcast, when you are mired in that sin, and like I said, a lot of them are sacrilegious because they chase after priests and they chase after seminarians. So it isn't just the sodomy, layer on top of that, the sacrilege. And a lot of them commit their their evil deeds inside churches. Layer on top of that, desecration. I mean, look at the sin that these people are mired in, and you think to themselves, doesn't any of it sink in? No. No, it sure doesn't. Because their hearts are just harder than titanium. There's you You don't soak into that until you repent of that sin, fully repent of that sin, go to confession, receive absolution, mean it, mean it, you know, stop. And one of the ways that you can tell is, um, or just one indicator that we can use, because, you know, you can't read anybody's heart, obviously. But one one thing that is absolutely true is that men who uh, turn their back, and also women, because it's the same thing, men who turn their backs on a life of sodomy repent and, no pun intended, straighten up and straighten out. Um, they stop acting like queens, okay? If there's, if there's a guy and he's just acting like a flaming queen there's something wrong there and i mean maybe maybe he's not going to gay bars or anything like that but i mean pornography any anything like that just just self abuse anything like that something is terribly wrong if a man especially a man who's who's in the church and even in Tradyland is acting like a flaming queen. Something is wrong. I mean, it's just common sense and you, you need to trust that. And, you know, if, if there's a man in your parish who is a flaming queen, he, he needs to have, he needs to be talked to as in either you knock that behavior off or you get out of this parish because the behavior, just queenie behavior, is in and of itself an obscenity because it points towards sodomy. It points towards the sodomitical lifestyle. So even though it's just, you know, a man having limp wrists and, you know, having putting on this haughty affectation and raising his voice up an octave and doing doing the queenie stuff that they do, you say, well, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But but you know, there is something intrinsically wrong with it because it is a species of of obscenity because of what it is pointing directly towards, um, which is why after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, we're going to have to have aggressive anti-obscenity laws so that there there can be, so that it is once again a crime to even, you know, show any image, anything that points towards 
sodomy or the sodomitical lifestyle or sexual perversion because it is obscene. Um, so let's see, get, getting back to my list, there are actually more and more and more, especially in Europe, and then it's spreading into the U.S., lots of sodomites in traddy land to be on the lookout for it. It's liturgical fetishism. It's sacrilege blasphemy. Uh, it's hatred of genuine piety. Um, that's another thing, you know, that I've noticed just kind of observing these in the instances that I've been able to observe these people. Um, yeah, they do make fun of people who pray the rosary, um, you know, of people who I got yelled and screamed at in public by one of them one time for kneeling to receive the Eucharist. No joke. And this is, this is a trad liturgist screaming at me because I kneeled to receive the Eucharist. I mean, it's just the hatred of piety, the hatred of prayer, and generally it's a hatred of a very consistent thing and a big, big warning flag. And, you know, I read this years ago, and um, it scared me because at the time I wasn't praying the rosary, and I just didn't have much of a Marian devotion because I had just entered the church. Um, and, you know, I was still very much engaged in the in the more if i may say the more masculine intellectual side of things and i read louis de montfort on our lady and he it, it said louis de montfort says right there a person who has has no devotion to the blessed mother and especially a person who hates the rosary is a is a sign of, and he used this word, reprobation, and it scared me to death. It scared me to death. It's like, oh no, you know, I don't, I don't have this massive, massive, massive Marian devotion. Does that mean that I'm, that I'm a reprobate? Well, it, it was, it was a blessing that I read that in retrospect. And then later on, years later, when I get into this milieu and I'm picking out these people who are sodomites and I'm, and not only that, it isn't just the sodomites themselves, but it's the people who run with the sodomites and know that the sodomites are sodomites and are willing to turn a blind eye to it or willing to tolerate it. Those people get infected, even though they're not engaging in sexually perverted activity necessarily themselves, all of the toxicity that's just, you know, streaming out of the, out of the sodomites, these people who are running in social circles with them and, you know, it's like they want to be in with the popular girls or something. How I mean, how much of this would just yep. be moral blindness? Well, yeah, I mean that too, but you, you hit the nail on the head. What it oftentimes has to do, and it has to do, it's oftentimes unmarried people, it's often single people, is that they get obsessed with this idea that they have to be in the quote unquote cool kids club and they want to run with the smart kids and they want to run with the funny, witty kids and who tend to also be single, obviously not have children, sodomites. And so these people end up glomming onto each other and then they get into these social cliques and then all of that toxicity from the sodomites just makes makes the um, the non-sodomite people in the clique take on these morally bankrupt things contempt of piety, hatred of the rosary. I've seen it I've seen it with myself. Oh, I tell you what, I, uh, one piece of advice to everybody out there, you hear any Catholic, any Catholic badmouth the rosary in any way ever, run, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. 
it is it is a 100% sure sign that something is terribly terribly wrong and i've i've lived it and seen it with my own eyes and i could kick myself it's one of those things you know you turn a blind eye you say well uh, well i i guess maybe that's not everybody's cup of tea or something like that no i'm sorry that is louis de montfort tells us that is a clear clear signal that something is terribly terribly wrong get away from it get away from it um so there these people are just morally blind at best yeah i think you're absolutely right you've got the sodomites who are just i mean their moral their moral compass is just the spring is sprung it's not working on any level no matter how many things they say right about in in other contexts what what they are doing and what they talk themselves into doing and what they are capable of doing, you know, to their own bodies and to the bodies of other people is so evil and so disgusting and so wicked that they cannot be trusted ever. They must be considered to be completely morally blind. And then they can, like I said, that cancer can spread and it starts blinding the people around them. Okay, so first... Um, first timestamp in the Milo and, um, we'll, we'll post the link, but it's, I think that the timestamps are exactly the same. There are two versions out of this video. There's one on Milo's channel and there's one on the church militant channel. And I think they're exactly the same. So these timestamps should work for both. Um, 355, you know, you open the interview and, you know, he makes it, Milo is making a joke and being very funny. And, you know, the thing that just struck me immediately is first, he's toned down his queeniness because he knows who his audience is. I've experienced this, too, with sodomite men who, when they're when they're alone with me or around me, they know who their audience is. And they've I mean, I've I've been around sodomite men who at the time I didn't know they were sodomites who were being positively gentlemanly. I mean, you know standing up, opening doors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they, they play it. Don't think that that affectation, that the queenie affectation is anything other than an affectation. No one's born talking like that. No man is born talking like that. That is a consciously planned out, practiced, acquired. Now you can say it becomes habitual, yes or no. Um, but I've too many times myself seen them turn it on and off like a switch, and you can see it with Milo. He's immediately at the beginning of this interview. I mean, he is putting on the charm, but he's he's got the queeniness ratcheted way, way back. But he's, oh, he's so cute. Oh, he's so funny. Oh, he's so smart. Um uh, you you can't be you can't be bewitched by this because remember sodomites are almost always of above average intelligence. Uh, there there are some that are dumb, but it's 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 rare because it's a function of diabolical narcissism. There there's an intelligence factor that that is highly correlated there. Most of them are of, of above average intelligence. That's why most sodomites their their income is is way above average, especially the men. Homosexual men's average income is way above you know the national average. Why? Because well, not, it's not just because you know they're double income households with no kids or something like that. It is precisely because they're of above average intelligence. They're witty. They're charming. They tend to be successful in their fields. They're, they're socially dexterous. 
don't fall into that trap. They turn it on and off based upon their audience. Um, and Milo was far less queenie in this interview. Okay, next timestamp, 445. Um, he's talking about... Um, oh, everybody, he, everybody hates him and he's come under attack by, by the right, he says, precisely because he is effective and they hate people who are effective. I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, that's probably partially true. Um, yeah, there's, there's, and we see it, you know, kind of with the with the Trump right or the Trump thing has brought it out of the right that there's that that soft center neocon right that you know they don't they don't really want there to be too much success. They just want they just want the grind to keep going and going and going because they make all their money off of the grind. Their their careers wrapped up in the grind. If everything's going well. Um, then there, there's nothing for them. They just want to maintain the status quo. So I do agree that he's probably been targeted um, precisely because he, he is effective and he does reach a large number of people. Um, and also certainly because he's he is a sodomite who's saying things that are extremely unpopular with the sodomite crowd. And certainly he, he comes under attack um, for that, I, I'm convinced that when we had our denial of service attacks um, over a year ago now, that that was a that that was probably instigated by sodomites who didn't like what I was writing at the time, and you know continue to write. Although the focus of my stuff lately is is obviously the anti papacy, but um, you know when I was writing about diabolical narcissism and and the sodomite milieu and all that, it just enrages them. And so I I absolutely do think that the attack on me and i'm not i'm not sure but i get the sense that um i am shadow banned in some way on google i remember and it's not it's not because my my web traffic is down because my web traffic is not down if anything my web traffic is is at the consistently some of the consistently highest levels it's ever been um but it's just the only, if if you type my name into Google and then you know close the the search parameter time window down to a week or anything like that, almost the only hits on on my name that come up are the paid troll websites. And there's there's a lot of them. I think a lot of them are done by the same guy. I think the same guy is doing probably six or eight troll websites that are almost entirely dedicated to me, believe it or not. I mean, they don't get any traffic or anything, but oddly enough, they go straight to the top of the Google results. Um, whereas I remember, and I, I mean, this is obviously right after I burned the Quran, and there, it was still riding that huge wave when the Quran burning video had gone vi viral and all that. But I remember, um, you know, getting up the next day and going downstairs in my office and Google and you know I you know I open my email and I have like a thousand new emails or whatever because this thing has gone wild overnight this video and um, I'm standing there watching I've googled my own name and I'm standing there watching the Google results and they were scrolling it was going that fast my it, the Google results were scrolling um, and I that was 
talk about intimidating. That was intimidating. Um, and now the really a lot, a lot of times the only stuff that comes up with my name is the troll websites, which makes me wonder, and I, I do strongly suspect, and I use Google Analytics here in the office, and the the numbers on my Google Analytics are like half of what you sent me, Super Nerd, that was the stuff directly from Cloudflare or directly off the server or whatever it was. So I, I strongly suspect that I've been, to a certain extent, that my name has been kind of like halfway shadow banned. I believe him. I think they've probably done the same thing to him. Um, I, I don't think that he's lying there at all. Um, let's see, at the 603 mark, what is he talking about? Okay, he starts talking about the fact that he was he was molested slash raped as a 13 or 14-year-old child by a priest and tries to shake it off. And, you know, he goes in and he starts saying, but it, I didn't let it ruin my life. And I'm just sitting there looking at this and thinking, dude, you're an active, unrepentant sodomite. If you die like this, you are going to burn in hell for all eternity. You will never see God. And you sit there and say, well, it it did ruin my life. Um, Yes, it did. It absolutely ruined your life. The priest who molested slash raped you was a vampire who went after you with with the express thought of dragging you down into hell with him out of pure spite and you're just saying oh shaking it off oh it was no big deal it was no big deal he was he says i was 13 or 14 years old and you know people wonder why when he gives these interviews saying you know sometimes these relationships between young teenage boys and adult men can be can be good they're they aren't necessarily a bad thing i mean no no this is why he has no credibility I mean, he has no credibility because he's a sodomite, but when he says things like that, that it's just, this guy is so morally blind, so morally far gone, so incapable of any sort of objective introspection, self-awareness, anything. I mean, all you can do is sit there and shake your head and, you know, this is why we have to pray for him. So he doesn't even realize that that molestation or rape that he suffered as a child is what is what did this. It's why he's a sodomite. It's it's obvious and he can't even acknowledge that. Well, Um, okay, let me let me interject something there. mm -hmm. It's I I don't know if I, I would imagine for some people you could make a direct line between having an experience like that at 13 and 14, mm-hmm. some kind of molestation event, and then becoming a sexually deviant older in life. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you can say with absolute certainty that one leads to the other. There's certainly definitely correlation. Um, there, There's a profound impact that is going to be felt on on a person when they have that happen to them at, their, at that age. The likelihood that they're going to have a normal, healthy... Um, image of themselves as a teenager and as a young adult and as an adult is dashed for sure. Mm-hmm. Absent the grace of God. And of course, that's you know jumping way ahead, but grace perfects nature. And if there's one thing that can set all of this straight, it is the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And if something, if somebody had something traumatic happen to them like this and they were able to get counsel from a good priest, 
and have recourse to the sacraments mm-hmm. and and have the grace of God to heal this, I don't think they would turn out like Milo. Sure. That's there's, a great point. There's, there's a yeah. combination of both nature and nurture here, as well as neglect. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think you can di- directly draw a line straight from this happened, therefore it follows that this will this will be happening down the road. Right. There if if a, a, if a lad is, is raped like that, he's not he's not necessarily absolutely doomed to a life of same sex attraction and sodomitical acting out. You absolutely right. And thank you, thank you for correcting me and interjecting that in. Yes, it can be dealt with. And you know, it used to happen. It used to happen back in the day. And I've told this story before. Um this is a story from back around where I'm from in Kansas that I was told this by a priest who was told this by, you know, the generation before him that in the early, early in the 1910s or 1920s and understand a lot of Kansas is still um, unsettled, just coming off of being Indian territory um, that there was some teeny tiny town in the middle of Kansas, which was technically called in the Diocese of Salina or something like that, but that that would have probably at that time gone all the way to the state line. So it's covering a huge area. I don't know what town it was, but well, they at caught- At that point in time, the Diocese of Salina might've gone halfway to Utah. That's right. It could have gone all the way through Colorado. Um, um, the The- priest, the parish priest in this little teeny tiny town, and every little teeny tiny town had a Catholic church, and the holy sacrifice was offered every day in the old rite. Sigh. Um, The priest was caught in flagrante raping, raping uh, a boy. And so what happened was, is that, you know, there's there's eyewitnesses to this. They caught him red-handed. There's absolutely no doubt, none. So they, um, the men called the sheriff, the sheriff came, they told the sheriff what happened, and um, they, you know, told the priest, we're going to take you out and we're going to shoot you, so you need to, you need to make your peace with God, and they did it, and then they wrote a letter, and then, oh, then Sunday came, and father didn't show up to mass on Sunday, and they wrote a letter to the, to the bishop and said, you know, father Smith or whatever, father Smith did not um, did not arrive to celebrate mass on Sunday morning. And we went to the rectory and it appears that he is completely gone. You need to send another priest. And that's how they handled it. I mean, you, you don't need to put the lad through the public exposure of a trial. And uh, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. You've got multiple eyewitnesses. You call the sheriff and tell him what happened. And it's just, you know, men used to be men. And, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest fan of due process that there is, but there's certain instances where you just, you don't need to destroy the kid's life, humiliate the family, scandalize. And I I keep telling people this, there were people up until not too terribly long ago who lived entire full lives of 80 years and never had any idea that sodomy even existed as a thing. I got an email, I think it was an email the other day, Yeah, it would have to have been. I think it was a reader. It was nobody I knew. So it must have been an email. It comes in and he says, okay, my father was a policeman 
And he told me that my great-grandfather, in other words, the policeman father's grandfather, he would talk to his his grandfather about his job as a policeman. And, you know, the grandfather would ask him, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, you know, what kind of things do you see? And he said that the great-grandfather absolutely refused to believe, went, went to his deathbed, absolutely refused to believe that sodomy was even possible, that it was possible for one man to do that to another man. The great-grandfather, when the grandson was telling him stories about his life as a policeman in a city, absolutely refused to believe him that it was even possible. That is how far we have fallen and how, you know, we all, it's just, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere now. And I think people are losing an appreciation of how truly rare it is, was, should be, and that people didn't even know about it. And it was taken care of. Now, so what happens back to the story about the kid in 1910 in the middle of Kansas somewhere? Okay, he gets raped. So they take the, they take the priest out, they execute him as he deserved, and, you know, the kid... It, it, the kid moves on, you know, he was defended by these strong men. So he doesn't have any sort of, you know, he has that, that knowledge that there are strong masculine men and that they defended him and he was precious. And this crime that committed against, that was committed against him was so grave that it was a capital offense. And it, and that capital sentence was carried out. And, you know, I would be willing to bet having something horrible happen like that, that it, that the kid probably went on to get married and have a family. And, and it it was just a horrible, terrible thing that happened to him in his childhood, but they were able to move through it, just like you said. And that's, that's the difference. That's the difference between, you know, this world and, and, and the world of yesteryear is that, yeah. It's not the way you would want it, but it's definitely a way of showing the dignity for life. And I can't help yeah. in my mind but contrast that story to the recent events in the state of New York where it's now legal to abort babies up to the second before they're born. Mm-hmm. It, yep. The insanity of, you know, who, who is better off now? People now or the way they were? Well, exactly, exactly. It's just, it's gone so far so fast. And it, it, that's a great point in how you framed it about the dignity of life. It is the dignity of life. And what, what a lesson to that, to that boy that you are so precious that if even a priest commits this crime against you, it is a capital offense that will be summarily carried out summarily carried out it's that grave i mean that's i don't want to use the word beautiful because there's nothing about that that's beautiful but it is a testament to the dignity to the dignity of human life it's a powerful witness it's a manful witness manful witness virile potent absolutely okay next time stamp the nine minute mark um he's talking about you know the fact that yes homosexuals homosexual men do chase after they want they want young boys and it's just a just to reiterate and we're going to have to put an adult warning on this definitely but 
the reason that sodomite men, like all of them, want teenage boys is because they want to be their vampires and they want to be the one that converts somebody. So they they want to go after those young boys, those young pubescent boys, but they're not, it's rare that they go after prepubescent boys. And the reason is, is because they want to make the boy um, a participant in the sodomitical act, which means they they want the boy to ejaculate. That is, and so you have to have a boy who's old enough to ejaculate, which like a six-year-old obviously isn't, but you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, definitely. But they, they want to get those young men and they want to get them for the first time. They want to be the one who just gets that young, innocent, undefiled young man and just drag him down the way that they were they were drugged down and a lot of times they are reenacting abuse that they suffered not always not always but a lot of the times they are and they'll gravitate towards um boys who were the same age that they were when they first started getting abused. And it's that vicious cycle thing. So, you know, the 12 year old grows up and when he's 25, he then starts fixating on 12 year olds because he's, he's like seeing himself and there's this twisted, perverse, um, diabolical need to drag other, other ones down. And the thing to remember with that is, is that, as unpleasant as this is to say, there's a lot of young men out in the world who have been sexually abused in this way by their uncles, their blood uncles. Don't think that blood relationships are any sort of a barrier to this. You cannot have a, a sodomite brother and say, oh, he would never touch my sons. Hell yes, he would. In fact, he might even be even more attracted to them because they bear a physical resemblance to him. And so he sees himself even more in them. And he wants to, he wants to vampirically destroy them. Even your, you know, your brother, who is a sodomite, cannot be trusted with your children, even though they're closely blood related. Don't don't ever kid yourself into thinking that, because like I said, look up the statistics. There are all kinds of gay men who were initially abused by their uncles. So be careful with that. Um, at 11.38, Milo says that he thinks that the age of consent should be 16. Um, that's funny. I think the age of consent, I think if you have, I think if you commit a sodomitical act with a 16 year old, that that's a capital offense and you should be executed. Okay. Two points I want to interject on at that point. Okay. Not only does Milo think that 16 is about the the age of, of consent, but Voris points out or interjects that canon law would agree with him. And okay. Canon law, I don't think names an age. I think it deals with whether or not somebody is an adult. And I think the strong case could be made in modern society where people don't even really become adults in some cases until they're in their 30s. That no, if, or 40s if, or 50s. <laughs> that yes. that you, if, if anything, you have to bias the age of consent up. Yeah. Legally speaking, in a lot of states in the United States, it's 18. In West Virginia, I think it's 14. And some of the other states, it's somewhere in between. Um. If anything, based on how immature society develops people at this point in time, 
there's a strong case to be made that people don't really become capable of making their own decisions until they're in their mid-20s. How about making the age of consent 25? How about making the voting age 35? Different topic, different podcast, I know. Yeah, right. Be be careful what you wish for. The other thing that I think we need to acknowledge here is that whether or not the the act is sodomitical or not, um, I'm not – do I think that a 22-year-old guy – having sex with a 16-year-old girl is a capital offense. Of course I don't. Of course I don't. It is different. It's a completely different can of worms. First of all, girls are, in fact, more psychologically matured in earlier age than boys are, even though uh, I absolutely concede the point that the entire the entire curve is shifting up, that people are are psychologically younger and more immature longer. But having said that, girls are, they're further ahead on the developmental curve in that sense. And also, we cannot, we cannot permit ourselves to be drugged down into this nonsensical argument that a heterosexual act is exactly the same as a sodomitical act. All sodomitical acts are mortal sin and most of them, I would say, are um, are capital offenses. So the difference between a 22-year-old guy having sex with a 16-year-old girl, I mean, no, I don't think that's a capital offense. I think we need to be looking at things like that. Um, well, and- a, a pretty good clue here is that the, the 22-year-old guy fornicating with a 16 year old or having sex with a 16 year old girl that's not a sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance no, exactly there's only exactly. four sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance and those ought to be you would think capital crimes in a rightly ordered society yeah and so what they're gonna what they're gonna try to do is the sodomites are gonna try to say that if there's any distinction made legally between um, a heterosexual sexual act obviously and a sodomitical act, well, you're discriminating. And the answer to that is, you're damn right I'm discriminating. Um, I'm going to discriminate on these lines all day long because that is what is called moral sanity. If you think that you're going to shame me or or um, coerce me in any way by throwing out the charge of discrimination, I'm just going to laugh in your face. Of course I'm discriminating. Of course I'm judging. It's insane not to. So, yeah, uh, any sort of a, a, a man over over 18 going after a lad under 18. Oh, hell yes. I think that should be a capital offense just right off the bat. And you know what? You could even argue that a 17 year old going after an 11 or 12 year old, that that could be a capital offense too, in terms of sodomy, in terms of sodomy. Um, well, of course the predation of a, of a person who is way, way far more, um, physically mature and and physically developed than a young person who is in the throes of puberty who you're clearly just going after out of out of 
a, a spite and a desire to murder that that lad's soul. And that's what it is. It's soul murder. He's not looking to murder his body. He's looking to murder his soul. And that's even worse in a sense. That's even worse. Because, you know, if somebody, you know, breaks into my house right now, some muzzloid breaks into the, my house and saws my head off, he hasn't murdered my soul. The sodomite going after the lad is trying to just crush the kid so that he goes to hell with with the sodomite uh predator so yeah there's a distinction yes there's a difference of course there is so don't fall don't fall prey to that you know political correctness garbage um so th- we're, at this point we're only through timestamp eleven thirty eight, and this was a right. one hour interview and yeah. we are over an hour in this podcast um you mentioned right at the top, this is going to be a multi-part topic, possibly. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to have to, you know, kind of cut it here and go to part two at at, at the, the next point. Um, yeah, and this is actually a good breaking point to do it, too. Yeah, I mean, it's there, there's there's a logical or there's a topical segue that happens next anyway. But mm-hmm. it, it's, the, yeah, this is a very, it's, it's a kind of, a, it's a very dark, not kind of, it is a very dark uh, topic to talk about, but it, it's real in the sense that it's happening, unfortunately, very commonly in society right now. And it's not just as the media would tell you, Catholic priests predating on on boys. It's much more so in the schools, public schools, especially. Yeah. There's there's um, a New York Times writer who posted a that he's he's uh, under the hashtag expose Catholic schools or expose Christian schools wants uh, stories of people who had bad experiences in Christian schools. Uh, I forget where I saw this statistic, but you are 10 times more likely to have a, um, a, a rape experience. I don't know if that's even the right terms. Um, a, 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 a sexual violation of sorts at mm-hmm. a public school than a private school. Of course. But the of media course. doesn't talk about that because public school is where the government gets to indoctrinate everyone. So they can't be all that bad. And you know what? They don't, the, the children, and I worry about this so much, the children in the public schools, you, you don't even have to physically sexually assault them or molest them in any way. It's these kids who are being fed this drag queen indoctrination. Um, you know, the girls who go enter into public junior high or high school fall under the spell of some lesbian witch volleyball coach and now it the risk isn't just that the girl turns into a lesbian the risk is now that the girl is going to go have her breasts cut off and get um be taking testosterone and and puberty suppressants and all of this crap without the parents consent coming through the quote unquote health office or nurse's office in the public schools this is happening this is happening so it isn't even it isn't even a matter of of anybody getting physically raped it's just the constant exposure in public schools which are now sexual perversion indoctrination factories period full stop you cannot send your children into this you cannot do it. You've got to get them out of it. You have to take whatever financial hit it takes to either get them into a trustworthy private school of some sort 
Oh, and you know, you just shudder to think about that or homeschool them. Well, we can't, we can't homeschool. That means that, you know, the wife would have to quit her job and then we wouldn't have two incomes anymore. Yeah, you're damn straight. You won't have two incomes anymore. But you know, your daughter isn't going to come home when she goes to university at age 19 and come home for her first Thanksgiving and have a mustache and have her boobs cut off. That that's the, that's the give and take. So you, you have to, you have to make these sacrifices. It's moving that fast, please, for the love of God. All right, let's cut uh, episode one of the great Milo controversy here and we'll pick it up with, uh, with the next episode. I hope. Well, I guess recapitulating what we started about with the top of the episode, Acedia. I mean, if you, if you listen to this and say, ah, I can't be bothered, then yeah. There's something well, seriously why, why wrong with you, man. Why aren't you mad as hell? Why don't you read these stories about these kids and what's happening to them? And and you just not be, why are people not just marching in the streets with with pitchforks and and torches no joke no joke i i keep I, I always use this example i mean there was something that happened in like the 16th century and somebody tried to change one of the antiphons in vespers on the sunday of pentecost or something and and the people rioted the people rioted we have this crap going on and everybody's just like Meh, there's nothing I can do about it. And then they just go Netflix and chill, you know? I was like, oh, <sighs> I'm, I, I hope I'm not coming across as being suffering from acedia to anyone out there listening. So, and I, I hope I can maintain this until, until either the triumph of the Immaculate Heart or I'm in my grave and then it'll be time for me to rest. You know, I can rest when I'm dead. With enough coffee or kombucha, I think you can maintain your head of steam until, um, and, until it's necessary. To, to, oh yeah, to... I'm totally booched up right now. Totally. <laughs> The email address for the podcast where you can send feedback, comments, or suggestions is podcast at barnhart.biz. Please remember that there are masses for Anne's benefactors every single day, as well as one requiem mass per week. Please join your intentions with these priests offering the masses. They definitely need our prayers as well. And the Barnhart podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media, and we'll give the standard pitch on that one after the next episode. And until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. Bye.